Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll visit a popular West Suburban theater company that's closing up shop in a couple weeks. I'll talk to the co-founder of First Folio Theater. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about the world premiere play Radio Gradient. Later in the show, I'll review the new French film Full Time. I'll also revisit my conversation with the local filmmaker behind a documentary that dives into the life of local civics hero, Abner Mikva. And we'll hear about a book that's all about smells. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. After over 25 years, Oak Brook-based First Folio Theater has decided to drop the curtain for good later this month. Founded by David Rice and his late wife, Allison Vesely, in 1997, First Folio has delighted audiences with both outdoor and indoor performances on the grounds of the DuPage Forest Preserve's Maze Lake Peabody Estate. Over the past 26 years, the professional company has mounted over 80 productions, won seven Jeff Awards, and welcomed thousands of theater lovers. The theater will officially close at the end of its current production, and neither have I Wings to Fly, which runs through February 26th. The original plan was for First Folio to mount one more play, a production of Twelfth Night in the spring, but the decision was made to end operations earlier than anticipated. I recently caught up with Rice at the Maze Lake Estate ahead of a matinee performance to talk about the history of First Folio and the difficult decision to close up shop this year. So let's go back to the beginning. First Folio started back in 96-97 with an idea to present a production of Shakespeare Outdoors in Oak Brook. Back in 1996, my late wife, Allison Vesely, came up with the idea of starting an outdoor Shakespeare festival here when the Forest Preserve had taken over this property and was looking to turn it into, at least in part, an arts venue. So I do have to give full credit to my late wife for having the idea. And we mounted our first show in 1997, a production of The Tempest. And the original idea was just to continue doing outdoor Shakespeare every summer. And then just to provide some background, you and your wife were both already established theater artists at that time, right? We both uh, began acting professionally in the Chicago area in the late 70s. And uh, I went back and forth between being a professional actor and being a high school English teacher. But she had, uh, had maintained her career as an actor and then later on as a director for the entire time. Was the thought back in 1997 that there was a need or a void for a professional theater company in the western suburbs? We always believed, and it has proven true, that there was an audience for live theater, professional theater, that was not simply musicals. Now, don't get me wrong. I love musicals. That's what I primarily did in the 80s and early 90s myself. But we knew that there was more to live professional theater than musicals, and there was no professional venue out here in the western suburbs doing what we call straight plays. 
So we knew that there would be a market out here, and that's why we started it. When First Folio started in 97, it only produced outdoor Shakespeare plays in the summer. Eventually, a new avenue was made available, and the company expanded its offerings. Then in 2002, this mansion had been renovated to the point where they were able to open it up to the public and begin having events in here, and that's when we decided that we would uh, investigate expanding to year-round and doing non-Shakespeare in a couple of different spaces here in the mansion and continuing to do the outdoor Shakespeare. Back in 2019, we mounted our last outdoor performance, um, Henry V, and then by that point, the stage was um, over 20 years old and needed to be replaced, and we just didn't have the funds to be able to uh, do the demolition of the stage and, and repla- replace it and continue to perform the outdoor shows. The outdoor shows have always been our most expensive shows, and ticket sales were never enough to pay for them. And I know it's impossible to, to pick out a favorite memory, but when you look back, what are some of the things that stick out to you over the past 25 plus years? Oh, you're right that there are so many. We've produced over 80 shows, but I would say um, on the outdoor stage, one of my favorite memories is the production of uh, Richard III that Allison directed back in, I think it was 2007, uh, starring an actor named Kevin McKillop, but just an outstanding production. Uh, Kevin had also starred uh, two years earlier in Hamlet, uh, directed again by Allison, and those were just two of the most incredible productions that we ever had on the outdoor stage. Here on the indoor stage, one of my favorite memories is a show that Allison actually talked me into writing, a show called The Madness of Edgar Allan Poe, A Love Story. I wrote that and we produced it originally in 2006 and it was so successful we produced it five more times. And it's an interesting show that combines elements of Poe's life with some of his short stories and, 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 uh, and poems. But the most interesting part about it is that it was a show that took place in uh, five different rooms of the mansion, six scenes in five different rooms of the mansion. So the audience, which would split up after the first scene, would see the scenes in different order and then gather together back in the library space for the finals, final scene. It was an amazing show, and Allison was, as much as me, the co-writer of that particular production and uh and it's still one of the most memorable things i've ever done in theater period if you're just tuning in this is the arts section i'm gary zydek i'm talking to first folio theater co-founder and artistic director david rice about the oakbrook based theater's history as far as the decision to close first folio obviously a lot's happened your wife and artistic partner passed away in 2016 and then of course the the pandemic took place so was it a combination of different external factors, or do you think it was just time to, to wind things down? It's related to all of those. Yes, my, my wife passed away of ovarian cancer in late 2016. We were able to keep going without her, but it's difficult to keep a small not-for-profit arts organization going. It requires an awful lot of work for not an awful lot of pay. And so when it got to the point where I said, I I need to wrap this up. I'm in my late 60s and uh, it's time for me to retire. The board and I did a lot of discussing and realized that it just wasn't going to be financially viable to bring in three people to replace me, which is what it would have taken. So we decided that we would just wrap it up purposefully. I read something, I think, when that announcement was made, and this obviously there's multiple factors, but one of the things maybe was that because of the location here, First Folio 
wouldn't fit the criteria for certain grants that were made available to Chicago organizations. Arts funding in the United States as a whole is very problematic. There is a very small amount of arts funding from either the state governments or the federal governments compared per capita to other industrialized nations, we're at the very bottom. And so we rely mostly on individual donations. And then there are some granting organizations that, that uh, supply funds for arts. But many of those have been struggling as well. And many of those pulled their funding criteria a little bit closer so that they used to fund for instance, arts organizations anywhere in Chicago or the Collar Counties. Many of them have pulled back to only funding arts organizations in Cook County or even just funding arts organizations in the city of Chicago. And for specific arts funding for the western suburbs, there has rarely been any organization that made it its mission to improve the arts presence here in DuPage County. I imagine that was a, a tough final decision to make. Yes, it was tough in that um, I felt that I was letting down my wife's vision a little bit, but my daughter, fortunately, along with others, disabused me of that <laughs> and made it clear to me that Allison would approve completely and totally of my finally taking a break. <laughs> it's, it's complicated. This is Rice's daughter, Haley Rice. I was sad, for sure, but also, you know, there's a time for everything, and being able to more or less choose how we go out, you know, and, and, and think about and be purposeful instead of just being, you know, like so many other companies, just sort of, oh, surprise, we're done. It allowed us to make a sort of peace with it, I think. I, I you know, I think that <laughs> this is going to sound really edgy, maybe. I think more companies should be able to reflect and say, hey, we've done what we come to do. The people who are keeping this afloat can't anymore. I think it's time to move on to different projects, you know, and that's okay. I think that there is a sense of shame about that sort of thing, and I don't think that that's necessary. I think that, you know, everything's got an ebb and flow, and everybody's got a different lifespan for these things, you know, and I think that being aware of that is a good thing. The younger Rice was 14 when her parents started First Folio. Her home life during those teenage years was a little different than her friend's. I mean, it was really neat, and I got to meet all sorts of really cool actors from the city who would let me, like, hang out around them and were very nice to me, a very awkward teenager. <laughs> and people ask, like, what's it like, you know, having, you know, actors as parents? And I don't have a basis for comparison because it's all I've ever known, you know? It's neat, I'm sure. Like, some people would love to trade places with me, you know? But, like, I'm sure that there's some moments where they're like, no, 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 I was cool with my parents at the 9 to 5, you know? There's, there's good and bad. <laughs> Understandably, Rice caught the theater bug at a young age and is a professional theater artist who acts, directs, and is the artistic director of the Chicago-based Babes with Blades Theater Company. She's co-starring in First Folio's final production in Neither Have I Wings to Fly with her father, David. I don't want to be like overly dramatic, but when those final few performances, isn't going to be emotional for you? I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I might, knowing my, my own way of processing things i'll feel it like two three days after it closes and then it'll hit me you know it'll and it'll hit me at a real inconvenient time so <laughs> i'll be driving and i'll be like oh god it's over and then like just pulling over and crying at the side of the road while trying to get to work you know <laughs> 
While not a well-known play, and nobles and neither have I wings to fly, is in some ways the perfect production for the Rices to say goodbye to First Folio. This play was chosen very purposefully. First of all, we think it is a, a brilliant play, originally produced by a theater company called Shanaki, an Irish-themed theater company back in the 90s in Chicago. Uh, Allison and I had talked about producing this on and off for years and just hadn't found the right slot for it. So it was absolutely one of those things that I was looking at as I and the rest of my staff were looking to program the final season. But I will also be honest that the deciding factor was that it provided an opportunity for me to perform on stage with our daughter one more time. Haley and I played father and daughter in a production of The Rainmaker back in 2013, and I wanted to be able to have the joy of being able to perform with her on stage one more time before we shut down. What's it been like working on this with her? It has been a dream come true. Um, I'm lucky in that my daughter and I not only love each other, we like each other. We make each other laugh. We take care of each other. She's, she's just a phenomenal daughter, and it's been a joy working with her. For listeners maybe not familiar with this, do you play the father of the character your daughter's playing? Yes, the focus of this play is on an Irish family um, in a rural community of Ireland in the 1950s, the Donnelly family, and I am the, uh, the patriarch of the family, Peter. And my wife, Moira, has just passed away. In fact, as the play is opening, we are just returning from her funeral. And I have two daughters, and the play focuses on what is going to happen to this family, which has some difficult relationships between the two daughters and the father. The father is not an easy father to get along with at all times, and the daughters have goals and desires in there and conflict, perhaps, with what the father would like. And then the ghost of the mother shows up, but can only be seen and heard by the older daughter, Evelyn, which is the role my daughter is playing. So it becomes a family drama, but with some ghostly elements to it. What's next once this production ends and First Folio officially closes? Well, I am not going to fully retire because I can't imagine just sitting back and doing nothing. So I am looking to uh, continue my career as a playwright and as an actor and hope that I can get my works produced at other theaters and get them to hire me as an actor. I'm also going to be doing some traveling. Uh, In the last year, I've been lucky enough to find another wonderful woman to share my life with, and she and I are planning on doing some some traveling in the near future. David, uh, what a tremendous run here at First Folio. Congrats on that, and... uh... Good luck with everything. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. That's David Rice. He's the co-founder of First Folio Theater, which is ceasing operations at the end of its current production, and neither have I wings to fly. It's running for another couple weeks through February 26th at the Mays Lake Peabody Estate in Oak Brook. You can find more information at firstfolio.org And a quick reminder if you listen to the arts section every Sunday morning make sure to visit the program's website over at theartsection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the show 
check out theartsection.org. If you have a question or suggestion, feel free to drop me a line. You can email me at gzydek at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or Twitter. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. Thanks for spending some of your Sunday morning with me. Did you watch the Grammys last week? Last Sunday night? Beyonce had a big night. She won a few Grammys and broke the all-time record for most Grammy Awards. Congrats. However, she didn't win for Album of the Year, which many people had predicted... uh, She's lost out on that category a couple times, a few times before. Um, this year went to Harry Styles. Not sure what to say about that. But uh, also, another big winner of the Grammys was jazz vocalist Samara Joy. She won the Grammy for Best New Artist, which is among the most coveted awards of the night. So big congrats to Samara Joy. Looking forward to the, the next time she comes to Chicago. Joining me now remotely are the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Racial inequality, colorism, and identity politics are among the themes explored in Shattered Globe Theater's world premiere, Radial Gradient. The play, written by recent Northwestern University grad Jasmine Sharma, takes a closer look at contemporary Greek life and some of the flaws that exist within sororities. The focus here is on three women characters who were at one point part of the same sorority. I think it's worth mentioning that Radial Gradient is set on the campus of a, quote, liberal university in America. Probably fair to assume it's in Evanston. Jonathan, let's start with you. What did you think? Okay. Well, the, as you said, Gary, the play talks about and reveals that the pledging process in college sororities is infected by racism and its uh, subcategory colorism, even right now in the second decade of the 21st, 21st century. And I imagine it's equally true of fraternities. You know, I'm not at all surprised about this. And Frankly, i got to tell you, I don't care a whole lot, which means that Radio Gradient doesn't have a lot to say to me. It's not the production. The three actors and the physical staging, it's directed by Grace Dolezal-Ing, are just fine. They really are fine, and they are, uh, all of the artists, an excellent example of how Chicago off-loop theater continually finds talented new artists. But college students whose identity and self-worth are based on campus Greek life strikes me as shallow beyond measure. And it always has, since I was a freshman myself, back when dinosaurs stalked the earth. Carrie, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you might have a different take on this. So why don't I toss it over to you? Well, I think, what's, I think what I feel is missing in the play, and I agree with you, the performances are fine, um, is a sense of where does Greek life fit on the ladder of success for women like the women and the young women in this play 
post-college because it's a little hard to believe that their social life isn't completely dependent at a school like this on getting into the right sorority. So it comes down, what I feel like was missing was like, yeah, but this is where you make your connections for your jobs. This is where you make your connections uh, for internships. This is where you meet the father of your you know, sorority sister who can get you a foot in the door at his firm. I think that those things are all true. I felt like maybe it wasn't as foregrounded or kind of given as a, as a, as a set of circumstances that would make wanting to be in these organizations attractive. Because I feel like there is kind of a split between these young women who are clearly passionate, intelligent, uh, have a lot to offer, and the ways in which they're putting themselves through, you know, these these really kind of awful, you know, I mean, it's not like hazing, it's not like a physically brutalized kind of system, but the sort of mentally exhausting process to decide which one should I be in, what kinds of microaggressions should I put up with as a young woman of color, um, and I feel like that kind of left a little bit of a vacuum at the heart of the story for me. Although I absolutely believe that everything that Jasmine uh, Sharma has has uh, depicted here does go on on campuses. But I think for me, it does leave a little bit of a question of like, then why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, there are other options. You know, um, uh, you know, my parents are both in you know in, in Greek life, but they were at a very small school. There weren't a lot of options, and it was. You know, I don't think it was a high-stress sort of thing. It was just like, eh, it's kind of a social club. This way you get a place to live that's not in the dorm, and, you know, you, you have some people to hang out with. No, it didn't no. feel like, and of course, my parents were white, so there was also that. And, um, so there is this idea for me in running through the play of why is this such an important thing that it, it fractures friendships as we see, it really seems to cause a lot of stress. We should talk maybe a little bit, Jonathan, about what the structure is. It kind of moves back and forth in time. One of the older students is doing a study about, she's now in multicultural psychology, so part of the play is sort of a, a recap, a rechecking in with two of the younger women who had been part of the pledge process about what those experiences were like. And then we see a series of flashbacks you know, through that process for them. Um, how did you feel like that structure worked in telling the story, Jonathan? Well, I think that technically the play is quite accomplished in its dialogue and structure. It's a three-character play, and it rather deftly shifts back and forth in time. And I think the structure is uh, more sophisticated, if you will, more complex than the perspectives uh, of the playwright, who is limited at this point in her career by her by her youthfulness and relative inexperience in the world. She's writing about what she knows. Jasmine Sharma's only a few years out of college herself, and this is based on her experiences. So I do not doubt, I, I, I second you, I do not doubt the truthfulness or the honesty of the material that she is, is presenting. But, but indeed, one of the merits of the play is that one of the three characters discovers quite early on that she's not a good fit for sorority life, and she turns her back on it. It fractures the friendship. But another character takes much longer to realize that a lasting friendship is a far better measure of self-worth than participating in the Greek life. So that is one of, as I see it, uh, that is one of the merits of the play. The play has a one questionable plot device, and that's the bookend device of this academic experiment. Mm -hmm. 
by the older student, in fact, the student who's now working on her PhD. It's an academic experiment. I do not think for one nanosecond any university ever would approve. It strikes me as a false note, especially as it's not thematically what the play is about. Right. I would agree with that. I also felt myself being taken out of those moments because I thought, I don't think the people who are, run, you know, who are in charge of her, of her, uh, of her PhD program would, would sign off on something like this. The other thing yeah. that I saw got kind of short shrift. The older student, we find out, has also been the, uh, has, uh, been the victim of, you know, some, uh, some bad behavior directed towards her, and there has been no real response. I mean, there's emails that are just sort of, as I recall, not really even calling it a hate crime. I feel like we yeah. see these things talked about. We see projections of the emails, but um, it feels like these are pretty important turning points that I'm not saying we need to see a recreation of it, but it felt like it needed to be woven in on stage or seeing it, the effect on them in the moment rather than in talking about it afterward. Does that make sense to you, Jonathan? I don't know what you're feeling on those, those yeah, the moments that I'm talking about. Yeah, what you're saying makes sense. I didn't quite pick up on them as, um, as specifically as you apparently did, but it, it makes sense. You know, and, and I think you're, you're getting at something that I'm going to put in a slightly in a different way. I think the subject that uh, Sharma is addressing, I think it needs a bigger play. Uh, I think it needs something. I mean, this play is what it is, but the mm-hmm. subject could certainly is is big enough and broad enough to uh, to encompass a larger dramatic structure, a bigger play. Racism and colorism. If anyone doesn't know what colorism is, it's a racism within the same color group or the same mm-hmm. ethnic group, group, and it's pervasive and insidious in our wide world. And I have observed it in. In a number of times within different ethnic groups. So if you're going to use sororities as your microcosm of the wider world, I think you need to see a whole bunch of young women right. and not just three. It's kind of like writing a baseball play, a, a, a baseball play with only three players. Right. And I think part of it, too, is that uh, that would add to the idea of another central struggle that I think these young women are facing is. Do I leave the system and realize, look, it doesn't exist for people like me? I think there was one line about, you know, just being in the room doesn't change the walls, you know. Or are you like one of the characters who has come chair of their local Panhellenic Association, determined to make the change from the inside, and then realizing maybe that change cannot happen from the inside. Maybe the system is set up to absolutely guarantee that I just do a lot of extra work and nothing ever changes. That's really powerful. And anyone, you know, we've certainly seen these questions come up in a number of arts organizations and theater organizations that, you know, we're bringing in new leadership, new leadership of color. Are they being supported? Or, and is there really a, a, a commitment to change or is it just sort of a cosmetic thing? These are all really fascinating issues. And I think Sharma is definitely a smart and skillful playwright. But so this is my long-winded way of saying, I think if there have been a few more characters, a few more moments where we can see how all of this connects rather than it being sort of, again, talked about, but actually see it embodied in some on-stage relationships, it might land with a little bit more power, at yeah. least for me. I feel like that would be the case. Yeah. You know, there's a funny 
a counterintuitive thing about criticizing new plays, and this is a world premiere, hasn't mm-hmm. been, been seen before. If a play is a flabby total mess, and there is very little that critics can t- say specifically about it, it needs this, it needs that, this works, sure. this doesn't work. The stronger a play is, the more intelligent it is, the more carefully it is structured, the more specific uh, critics can be about what works and what doesn't work. Just as you and I are being very specific about this play, that is a testament to this young playwright's talent, and I'm glad that Shattered Globe has discovered her, and I hope that they have an ongoing relationship with her. I do want to see what she does next. Yeah, and I think this is the first, I may be wrong on this, but they have a new global playwrights uh, series that uh, that they've been doing, fostering work from the global majority. And uh, this is definitely a very worthy, you know, intro to that. If it, I hope I'm not wrong on that. I think this is, in fact, the first play that they've done in that series. And again, yes, it is a testament to, to the, the wide-ranging, you know, <laughs> ability of, of charm and to balance a lot of different issues, bring in all these nuances into one story that makes me hungry to see what she can do with, with you know, with even more characters, a larger palette. And I also want to say, I think Grace Dolezal Ng's staging and the performances, as you mentioned, Jonathan, are very praiseworthy. There was not a point where I felt bored or unengaged. There were points where I felt like, I want more of this, or I'm sort of questioning, as you did, this one plot device, because this just feels like it, it would not go down the way <laughs> it yeah. is being presented here in academia. But these are all things, to me, that just speak to, we want to see more by Jasmine Sharma. So... So there's been mention of uh, colorism, and then I think about the title, Radial Gradient. Uh, so do, is there a lot of attention given to, I guess, the degrees of discrimination or uh, prejudice? Yeah, the title does come up during this sort of uh, study that the older student is doing with the two younger women, and they talk about the, what the radial gradient means and putting you know, pictures of different people themselves and celebrities of color and where would you put them on the color, you know, on the color scheme, if you will. Um, so yeah, it, it is addressed in the play. So yeah, yeah. And one of the characters is kind of quote unquote white presenting. So um, and she is happens to be the one who's trying to stay in the system and make changes, whereas you know a couple of the other ones decide, you know, we're out. We've we've done what we can. So I hope that's not too much of a spoiler. But the ways in which they make those decisions are really what form the dramatic. Uh, crux of the story, so I don't yeah. think that's too much of a giveaway. Shattered Globe's world premiere, Radial Gradient, continues through March 11th. Gary, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're most welcome. Always good to talk to you and and uh, and all those folks out in Radio Land, if people still say that. I just checked, and yes, people still say that. Okay, guys, see you next week. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. One of Illinois' most respected public servants is celebrated in a documentary that's set to be screened at the Chicago History Museum later this week. The film titled Mikvah, Democracy as a Verb, offers a compelling portrait of the late Abner Mikvah. Often remembered for his incredible career of public service and support of civic engagement, Mikva passed away in 2016 at the age of 90. 
The Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient had the rare distinction of serving at high levels of all three branches of federal government. Mikva was elected to Congress in two separate districts, more on that later, then was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals bench in Washington, D.C., and later served as White House counsel to President Bill Clinton. After leaving the nation's capital, he returned to Chicago and became a mentor to future President Barack Obama. Over the course of his distinguished career, Mikva was always open to compromise, but never shied away from a political fight, even if it was with Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daley or the powerful National Rifle Association. It's all in the documentary, Mikva, Democracy as a Verb. I caught up with the film's director, Bob Hercules, to talk about Mikva's legacy and the inspiration for the project. So what was the, the starting point for this film about Abner Mikva? Well, I was approached about making the film by two men who became the producers of the film, Greg Kincheski and Sanford Horwood. They had both been staffers for Ab Mikva in the 70s, and they were their lives, I think, had changed by meeting him. So they really wanted to make a film about him. Neither one of them are filmmakers. So they had heard about me, I think, because I do a lot of films about politics and social issues, and they approached me about doing the film, and I thought it was a great idea. I knew I had known about Ab Mikva, of course, and uh, though I didn't know his full story, but I agreed to come on board, and we started back in, uh, I think, around May of 2016, we first started. So you were familiar with, with Mikva, but once you started researching, what, what types of things did you start to uncover that maybe surprised you? Well, there were a few surprises because I didn't know his whole story. I was really amazed at how ahead of the times he was on a lot of issues, on gun control, on gay rights, on civil rights issues, things like that. So it was quite eye-opening to work on the film and to realize how prescient he was on on a lot of these issues. And uh, also I, I... realized he was such a strong advocate for democracy, and it's something that resonates with me very strongly, especially in times like this. You think about the threat to democracy. Ab Mikva was really a lifelong champion of democracy and democratic values, and his life was really changed by a government program, the GI Bill. Once he got out of the service, he, he was very poor. He came from a very very poor family from Milwaukee. So getting that GI Bill and allowing him to go to the University of Wisconsin was literally life-changing for him. And I think he really learned the lesson that government can often be a good, a positive force in people's lives. And so that's kind of what he stood for the rest of his life. And I really admire that. Right. You provide some context into, on Mikva's upbringing, which was interesting. And then is it really then that, that experience with the, the GI Bill that you think sparks his interest in public service? Well, I think he was inclined that way anyway towards public service and serving for the good. There's something kind of deep inside him. And he had seen poverty. He had experienced poverty in Milwaukee during the Depression. And I think he wanted to do good things in, in society. And going into politics was maybe the most obvious choice for him if he wanted to do good in the world. His wife also, his wife Zoe also really, I think, helped push him in that direction as well because she had a very strong social conscience as well. So I think it was all those factors that brought him into running for office when he was pretty young. He was in his late 20s and he ran for state house 
and won and never stopped, really. So Mikvah moves to Chicago, serves in the Illinois legislature for 10 years. Then he decides to run for Congress, and he finds opposition not only from Republicans, but his own party. How would you describe his relationship with Chicago Democrats? I would say it was a very testy relationship he had with Mayor Daley and the Daley machine, because he was a, a person who advocated high ethics and high morals and fair play. And the Democratic machine was a machine. It was, it was set up for its own power, to, to feed its own power. And so they clashed often. In fact, later in the film, you'll see that Mayor Daley, the first Mayor Daley had gerrymandered or rigged, rigged it so that Mikva lost his congressional seat, his, his uh, district in Hyde Park, and, and had to move to Evanston. That's how vicious it was, really, that Daly literally gerrymandered him out of his seat. That's pretty hardball. Right, right. I feel like people familiar with Chicago politics see that and are like, yeah. But maybe for folks unfamiliar with the Chicago machine, Richard J. Daly comes off looking like a, a, a villain. From what you've gathered, was it personal for Mayor Daly? Did he have a personal issue with Mikvah's? No, I, I don't think Daly... Uh, had a personal issue with mikvah i think it was more just a function of power and consolidating always consolidating their power mikvah was not a, was not going to play ball with the machine for sure so they wanted to get him out of there so they could control that district that area in hyde park but later actually uh as it's said in the film daily came to terms with mikvah realizing that mikvah was going to win that congressional seat and uh, so did not back the opponent, who was an elderly man uh, who was running, who was the, the sitting congressman. But he was, by that point, I think he was like 84 years old. Right. And so Daly decided to stay neutral in the race, which essentially was, in a way, was giving the nod to Ab Mikvah. So I don't think it was personal on Mayor Daly's part at all. But then, without giving too much away, but then they end up redistricting again, forcing Mikvah then yeah. to, to leave his neighborhood and move to a completely different district. So he moved up to Evanston once he was gerrymandered out of his district in Hyde Park. And, and this is in the early 70s. And um, he ran for a U.S. congressional seat out of Evanston, lost the first time, but then won uh, the second, third, and fourth tries. So he really had to reestablish a base up in Evanston, which in those days was more of a Republican district, interestingly enough, but of course now is very liberal. So I feel as though elected officials and party leaders today will publicly applaud Mikva's approach to reaching across the aisle, but I don't know if Mikva could win a congressional seat in today's highly divisive <laughs> landscape that often views compromise as a, a dirty word. What do you think? I, I tend to agree with you. It's um, a thoughtful candidate, somebody who weighs the issues really thoughtfully and, you know, deeply is not uh, is not thought of highly these days. And, and somebody who, comprom who who seeks compromise when possible for the good of the people is actually not. I, don't, I think it's seen as a sign of weakness, which is really sad. I think politics is compromise. So to denigrate compromise as as they've done is really a negative impact on society because it's hard to get things done if you're not willing to compromise. 
Let's take a moment here and listen to a clip from the documentary. And in this scene, we'll hear about Mikva's connection to then-future President Barack Obama. When I was thinking about running for the, the state senate, uh, he was uh, one of the first people I talked to to seek advice, and he was very encouraging. He said, look, politics isn't for everybody, but uh, for, for somebody like you, Barack, who wants to make an impact and has a pretty good moral compass, um, I think you should give it a shot. I was absolutely astounded when I first met him at how bright he was, what complete political skills he had, the depth of intellect, the depth of interest, the ability to listen. At each stage of my career, uh, I would always make sure to check in and, and uh, get his thoughts and his advice, and uh, uh, he never steered me wrong. When Barack went to the state Senate, Ab really counseled him on the legislative process down there, on how to operate as a progressive, as a reformer. I think that Ab's long history had an influence on Barack as to how he could move forward. He thought of Mikvah as almost a father figure to him in politics. That was David Axelrod talking in the new documentary, Mikvah, Democracy as a Verb. Mikvah had relationships with two of the most influential politicians in U.S. history, Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Right. Did, did you get a, a sense of, of what those individual relationships were like? Yeah, I think I don't think he was that close to Bill Clinton. He only served as White House counsel for a year, so it was not that close of a relationship. I think he, as Al Hunt, one of our interview subjects, points out, he had a, a little bit of a testy relationship with Hillary Clinton, as a matter of fact, over his initial support of Kenneth Starr, the investigator who was the special counsel investigating what was first started out as the Whitewater situation. But I think he was, Ab was very close to, to President Obama because they both taught at the University of Chicago Law School for a few years, and they would have lunch or breakfast quite frequently. And so they got to know each other quite well. I think Obama really looked at Ab as a mentor to him. That had to be uh, quite a get to get uh, former President Barack Obama to, to sit down to talk for this. Yeah, it was, we were very honored to have President Obama do an interview exclusively for this film. But, you know, he was happy to do it because he really does feel that Ab was one of his main... I think he looked at Abner Mikva and Newton Minow as two of his wise you know, counsel, basically. And those were his two of his main advisors and mentors. So it was it made sense for Obama to do the interview. I have a relationship with with uh, President Obama going back to a film I made in 2006 with him. We went to Africa with then Senator Obama and made a film called Senator Obama Goes to Africa. So you know he and I have known each other for years. So some public officials think about their legacy and maybe want to put their names on things, uh, Abner Mikva had kind of a, a unique approach to what he wanted to, to leave behind, and you get into it in the, the film as far as showing the, the work done by the, the Mikva Challenge. Yeah. I mean, the, the Mikva Challenge is a phenomenal organization. It's been around for 20 years. It's something that Ab and his wife Zoe set up to really uh, work, help kids high school kids, especially kids from low-income neighborhoods who don't often have access to politics and to political campaigns and civics, to really get them engaged in the civic life of the country, 
to, to help create future leaders who are so needed in our society. It's just an unbelievable program. It's, I talked to a lot of Mikva Challenge students over the years. Every person I talked to, every, every young person I talked to, said their life had really literally been changed by being in that program. And it gave them a sense of, of power and self-empowerment and um, a sense of identity and uh, really a path to changing things in society. So it's a very powerful program. The themes covered in the, in the film would be appropriate at, at any time, but it feels uh, especially relevant at this point in time with what's going on. What are you hoping that, that people who spend some time with this walk away with? I'm hoping that people would have a sense of the importance of democracy, the importance of compromise, the importance of civics, and how it influences our world and how it, it's important for our future generations via the Mikva Challenge to see young people rising to the, to the, next, you know, the next group of leadership. And uh, I think it also points out how fragile democracy is. I hope people take away a reappraisal of democracy and how important it is. Well, I really enjoyed this. I knew of Mikva's work, but this documentary offers a lot more context, and uh, I think it's really relevant for this moment. Bob, thanks so much for making time to talk to us. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's been great talking to you. That was Bob Hercules. He's the director of the documentary Mikva, Democracy as a Verb. The film is being screened with some new features at the Chicago History Museum on Thursday, February 16th at 5 p.m. You can find more information about the event at chicagohistory.org. I'm Gary Zydek. It's movie review time on the arts section. The new French-language film, Full Time, illuminates just how thin the line between getting by and poverty can be for some families. The movie follows a chaotic week in the life of a single mother, Julie, played by acclaimed French actor Laurel Calamy. Divorced with two young children, Julie tries to maintain a stable household in the suburbs while she works as the head chambermaid at a five-star hotel in Paris. That already challenging existence takes a turn toward full-blown mayhem due to a combination of factors. Julie's bank account is running low because her deadbeat ex-husband hasn't paid child support and won't answer her repeated calls. We also learn Julie is pursuing a new job in marketing, a field she's previously worked in. While we never get the details of what happened and how she ended up as a maid, it's revealed that she has a master's in economics and is desperately trying to get back in her field. Adding to her stress, the kid's nanny, an older neighborhood woman, has grown tired of Julie's long hours and no longer wants the job. And exacerbating the entire situation is a transit strike that's crippled Julie's main form of transportation to and from work. And the cherry on top, Julie is trying to set up her young son's birthday party while everything else is going on. There's a memorable scene of Julie coming home after what was likely a 13-14 hour day. She puts her kids to bed, but before she can go to sleep, she has to unload and set up a trampoline that she's bought for her son. Director Eric Gravel presents the story of the struggling single mom in the form of a thriller. 
The film moves at a frenetic pace as we watch Julie lift mountains to get to work, then to sneak away for a job interview, and then try to get back home to feed and bathe her children. There's no rest for the weary, and we the viewers don't get a moment to catch our breath either. It's very similar in style to the Safdie brothers' work. Josh and Ben Safdie are the creative team behind breakneck thrillers Good Time and Uncut Gems. Both films relish putting audiences on the edges of their seat from the moment they start. Here the stakes would seem to be lower. There's no crime or vices involved. Julie is literally just trying to survive, and a realistic turn of events has sent her spiraling. Without giving too much away, there's a part later in the movie where it's no longer a given that Julie is going to pull up from this nosedive and it becomes clear just how quickly a family can descend into poverty. I think the realities of that story are universal whether you live in France or the U.S. Viewers who might question the impact of a transit strike on your everyday life should know that protests and strikes are a somewhat common occurrence in France. I've had holidays in France disrupted by rail strikes. Inconvenient for me, sure, but the real impact was on the people who live and work there and depend on the subways, trains, and buses to get around. No judgments from me on the rail workers, it's a complicated situation. With full time, Gravel has crafted a masterful work that slyly grabs your attention and wins your affection for a character who, despite numerous and growing obstacles, keeps moving forward. Calamie is fantastic in the role as she balances multiple balls in the air while standing on a tightrope. She won the Best Actress Award at the 2021 Venice Film Festival for her performances, Julie. I highly recommend Full Time. I give it 3.5 out of 4 stars. It's currently playing in Chicago at the Music Box Theater through Thursday, February 16th. Beyond that, we'll have to see if it pops up anywhere else. This is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Valentine's Day is coming up. Perfume and cologne are always popular gift ideas for loved ones, likely because our memories are so closely tied to scents. A recent book aims to make sense of scents. Revelations in Air aims to shed new light on perhaps the least understood of our five senses. Have you ever wondered why certain scents can evoke such intense memories and feelings of nostalgia? The book comes from Chicago-based author Jude Stewart. I caught up with her to learn more about her research and how a graphic designer became interested in writing about scents. I like learning about the origins of, of different projects, uh, and especially books, uh, you know, what inspires an author to, to take something on. So for this, for Revelations in Air, from what I gathered from the intro, it wasn't like you had this inherent interest in, in scents. It was, was it this exhibition in, in Berlin that kind of sparked the idea? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, my background is in uh, graphic design and kind of visual culture. And so, you know, I was, uh, you know, this is kind of like a, like a right turn into a different, a different sense register. But um, you're correct. I was uh, kind of stumbled into this art exhibit and, um, you know, on some level was like amazed by how viscerally I felt all the smells. To just describe it briefly, I walked into this room that was kind of vacuum sealed and one wall of it was just um, pipes like a big organ, a musical organ, and uh, it could pipe in a smell and then just as quickly kind of suck it out of the room. So you just get one really highly detailed smell after another. And I just found it like being plugged into an electric socket. You know, it was it was exhilarating. It was upsetting. It was exciting and all these things. And, you know, my previous books are about uh, color and patterns. So these things that surround you all the time, but you don't pay that much attention to. And 
I basically realized, well, smell is one of those things. Um, and so I started looking into, you know, learning about the process of smelling, which is called olfaction in our bodies. And like, that's very weirdly not well understood. And there's a lot of, you know, runway there. And it just got weirder and more fascinating. So I kind of dug down the, the rabbit hole and came up and had this book. <laughs> right, right. And early in the book, you dive in to the act of smelling. And science can explain a lot about our noses, but there is still this air of mystery to, to how certain elements of it all works. Yeah, that's true. Um, so we have 400 different receptor types in our nose, um, and that compares to four different receptor types in our eyes, just to give you a sense of um, the, the scale of complexity. But um, And also those receptor types in our noses were um, only discovered in 1991, so they're still kind of new in terms of being fully understood. But yeah, briefly, the, the process is that the smell wafts up your nose, and then it goes to the place where glasses would rest on your nose, the bridge of your nose there, and that is where um, you have an area called the um, olfactory epithelium, and these little receptors are like hanging in it, sort of like, I think I say in the book, like like uh, carrots hanging out of the soil. <laughs> and um, so those bind with the molecules, but we really don't understand sort of what makes the um, like a particular molecule bind with a particular receptor and then give us a, a scent in response. I mean, we can smell a lot more than 400 different smells. I mean, potentially up to a trillion, which is huh. clearly there's a lot going on. <laughs> um, but it's basically not well understood what happens at that point. What really drew me to the book was um, this idea that sense more than, than sights and, and sounds can create this sense of um, emotional time travel. So like the smell of my grandfather's aftershave or like um, if I go into a hot dog stand, it like reminds me of my first job I ever worked at or just like a blossom that I passed by in a random tree. It, like transports me right to these like specific memories of my life. And you write in, in detail about it. But I guess what's the easiest way to describe what that is? Well, I think the opening line of the book, I refer to it as a tesseract, like like the, a thing that collapses space and time. I don't know if you've ever read that book, A, a Wrinkle in Time by Margaret uh, Madeline Lengel. But it's a, you know, like this imaginary notion that you could like fold space time and like bring two places really close together that are, you know, very distant normally. Um, so that's very, I don't know, mind bending way to think about it. But yeah, time travel, like I think of it as like a you step into the machine and suddenly you're, you're back there, you know, when you were a kid in some particular place and this vanished smell is like brings back all the specificity of that moment. So we can improve our palate. In fact, I think... As food culture continues to evolve, there's this greater appreciation and uh, desire to have a sophisticated palate to be able to decipher those different things we're tasting. You know, a lot of people my age uh, have gotten into bourbon or, or even wine or beer, and there's these tastings so we can pick out different notes. When it comes to smelling, is that something that we can improve? Is that something we can work on and improve? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you'll be happy to know that, you know, uh, working on your palate is a lot <laughs> about working on your sense of smell. Um, our sense of flavor and it, it is a combination of taste and what your taste buds take in, which is really only like five major categories. And then, like, the finer kind of detail over those, those five categories comes from all the smell molecules. So um, if you've been working on your palate, you're halfway there. Right. But yeah, definitely. Um, the book includes a lot of um, exercises that are all really simple, things you can try at home. You know, some of the things I did with like one of them was 
I pour. I have a bunch of different vinegars in my uh, kitchen, so I pour them all out into different small jars, and you know you can smell them in turn. And at first, they all smell like vinegar, but then right after that, you notice you can really tell the difference between apple cider, balsamic, you know, rice wine, whatever. And you know, right away, it's like, oh, okay, I can do this. It gives you a kind of a jolt of confidence that this is something you can actually learn and improve, and just by paying attention and thinking about it. Right. I think you wrote something about if you held your nose and drank coffee, you'd probably get bitterness, but it's really kind of mm-hmm. that, the ability to smell that brings out those different, uh, the notes that a lot of us crave. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a lower resolution and then a finer resolution is the way I like to think about it, you know, the relationship between taste and, and smell. And then there's other factors that, you know, kind of round out our sense of flavor. So like temperature or, um, you know, texture and crunch. Uh, how it feels to chew it if, if you're eating something. So all those things together, like this multidimensional um, view on flavor. Has your life changed since you started this project now? Are you like super aware of scents wherever you go? You know, it has in this very small but significant way. Um, you know, I want to emphasize that I was not like great at smelling before this. I'm not a super smeller. I would say I was maybe a B minus before the book, and now I'm like a solid B plus. You know, so this is like a very real journey that normal people like myself could go on. Um, but the way it's changed my life um, is that, uh, you know, I uh, I would describe smelling as kind of a mindfulness turned inside out. You know, instead of thinking about like when you, when you meditate or something, you think about like your mantra, your breath or whatever. But when you're smelling, all you need to do is focus on what's around you. You know, it's just a way to kind of pin your self in a particular space and time and like remember that you have a body and that you're you're here and um it's like a great way to just like get centered um so that is a thing i just do a lot more also when i like get new new objects or you know i buy a new purse or something i will smell it (laughs) i'm like not forgetting now that it's not just oh does it look nice or do i like this color or does it feel good in my hand it's like oh do I like the smell of it? Um, and it's just remembering that it's a sense that is adding to our sense of uh, reality. It just kind of makes everything a little richer. That's Jude Stewart. She's the author of the new book, Revelations in Air, a guidebook to smell. It's available everywhere books are sold. And before we wrap up, a sad note. Most of you have probably already heard Burt Bacharach passed away this week the uh, pop composer and sometimes singer was a incredible music maker so many hits attributed to his name Burt Bacharach was 94 and that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section but remember you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show my name is gary zydek i hope you'll join me again next sunday morning at 8 a.m right here on 90.9 and 90.7 fm for another edition of the arts section until then i hope you have a great week happy valentine's day thanks for listening <laughs>